This is the fifth day of this January 2021 Rohatsu seven day online session. <clears throat> we'll return to the great Japanese Zen master Hakuen. Before uh, getting into some of uh, his more vigorous passages, I uh, wanted to read a couple of short things that that uh, point to the compassion behind his fierceness. You know, it's uh, I remember hearing Roshi Kaplow reading the teachings of Hakuin. There were times. I confess where I thought, Jesus, he just seems so riled up, agitated, uh, fearsome all the time. Um, but much later I came to understand what, what that came out of. It's his, his, how painful it is to, for him to see people wasting their lives uh, or, or, or to put it this way, <clears throat> to see people who can't gather up the faith in themselves to come to awakening. What a, what a missed opportunity it was. How, how almost unbearable it was for him. And, 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 and out of that comes all of this effort to rouse people, to inspire, encourage, exhort people to go beyond themselves. Not, not, shortchange themselves, not settle for anything but the ultimate. Of course, he's talking to all of us, teachers and students alike. But before getting into that, I wanted to return to our Hakuin book from a couple days ago, Wild Ivy. It's uh, the spiritual autobiography of Zen master Hakuin. <clears throat> there one short thing there. Um, that he touches on. Um, he's recounting how his main teacher, Shoju, uh, how rough he had been on him. Um, this is this is the uh, translator uh, talking about Hakuen and Shoju. <clears throat> um, and the, the, the translator is saying in the introduction to Wild Ivy um, that Hakuin gradually came to appreciate why Shoju pressed him so vehemently to continue his practice. Why, when Shoju had asked his reason for becoming a monk, his reply, that he had done it because he was afraid of falling into hell, had brought the scornful retort, You're a self-centered rascal, aren't you? Not until 18 years later, upon attainment of his final great enlightenment at age of 41, would Hakuin fully grasp the significance of Shoju's reproach and with it the true meaning of post-Satori practice. Years later, when Hakuin asked his student Tore the same question, that is, his reason for becoming a monk, Tore answered, to work for the salvation of my fellow beings. And this brought a laugh from Hakuin, a much better reason than mine, he said. 
let's just uh, pick up a couple points here. When he said, I'm a, uh, when Hakuin said it when he was young, that he had become a monk because he was afraid of falling into hell. Well, we heard about that, how, uh, how much he, he, he feared that. Um, and I, I, let's not fault Hakuin for giving an honest reply. If that's the authentic thing that brought him to the Dharma, all right, it doesn't matter what brings you. It could be anything. For most of us, it is self-centered. We just want relief from our pain, our emotional, mental, sometimes physical pain. Roshi Kaplow talked about this, about uh, before going to Japan, his own... Uh, well, to use, I think, a different word than he did, his, his anxieties that uh, manifested as ulcers and insomnia and other things. We don't need to apologize for whatever brings us uh, to the Dharma. There, are, there have, are cases we know here at our own center where someone uh, became a member of the center because they fell in love with someone who was already a member. So they just wanted to join with them. And, you know, I think there are cases where the person who joined just because she or he was in love with a member then went on beyond the person, the other one, the partner who quit earlier. It doesn't matter what our reasons are. But Shoju is making a point. Yes, okay, that's a, that's a self centered reason. It's it's about yourself, relieving your own pain. But there is nothing, there is no driver of practice like the the wish to come to awakening for the sake of other beings. This I remember when I first got a glimpse of this, uh after, oh, I don't know, a dozen sashins or so. Uh, until then, it had been all about, you know, basically greed, greed for Kensho. And then there were moments where it opened up. And I realized this is how I can best help others. How anyone can best help others is to see through the egoistic impurities uh, of the mind. It enables us to be more, to serve others more, more selflessly, at least somewhat selflessly. And oh, how that changed my feeling about the practice, about, about doing yaza. Uh, it wasn't just to be, I don't know, get a blue ribbon or something, but it was, it was so that uh, from a state of having seen to some degree, even a small degree, through self and other, we are so much uh, better equipped to help others selflessly. And, and, and that should come, that motivation, that, that broader, more magnanimous, uh, purer motivation is one of the... Uh, the developments that happens over time. I don't know. I can't say that everyone reaches that point. But uh, I suppose if you do it long enough, 
uh, and the, the the ego and, and its motivations uh, has uh, been sanded down enough, then probably everyone would get to that point because that's our our natural inclination. Underneath all the egotism is this mind of kanon, this wanting to help others in how, whatever way we can. And then uh, from this same book, Still Wild Ivy, uh, just a little bit more. Uh, these are, now this is, we're out of the introduction. These are Hakuin's own words uh, in his own autobiography. After his uh, after his first of his first awakening, he uh, uh, was he settled down and uh, was really enjoying the the bliss uh, of having awakened. But then he writes here, uh, "I decided I would be far better off if I followed the parting advice Shoju had given me." to devote my energy to liberating the countless suffering beings of the world by imparting the great gift of the Dharma, to assemble a few select monks capable of passing through the barrier into genuine Kensho, to strive diligently toward creating conditions for the realization of a Buddha land on earth and, in the process, carry into practice bodhisattva vows. And then he adds, when I resolve to embark on this grand and far-reaching program and send a handful of genuine monks out into the world, it was because I wanted to repay the immense debt I owed to the Buddhas and patriarchs. Just a reminder, you hear Buddhas and patriarchs, it really means his enlightened predecessors. Buddhas, in plural, Buddha, Buddha, Buddhas with an S, uh, we can just understand as uh, enlightened ones. This is someone who is uh, drunk, already drunk deeply from the well of the Dharma, that he would feel this kind of gratitude and, yes, debt. Debt to those who helped him uh, in his practice. Now we're turning back to yesterday's text, and maybe the, the another Hakuin book. Maybe it was uh, maybe it was the, the day before as well. This is uh, the essential teachings of Zen Master Hakuin, also translated by Norman Waddell. Here too, uh, there's just such a immense amount of material in Hakuin's teachings. I'm just um, Without apology, I'm just plucking out uh, passages from these these two books, and there's another one. <clears throat> Hakuin uh, inveighed against uh, those who, after after some uh, insight into their true nature, or none at all, who knows, uh, then became puffed up with pride, as he, remember, as he had been after his first Kensho, puffed up and thinking that you've reached some 
kind of uh, crowning experience, and then you're done. He does a lot of that in his writings. He must have done it, well, he did it first of all because he remembered having made that mistake himself, having th having thought that he was he was done, he had arrived. But also he must, I guess, he must have seen it in other other uh, monks, uh, senior monks, uh, during his in, in his time. So here's here's an example where he gets his his fires uh, stoked up. Unfortunately, however, uh, we have another species of teacher in our Zen school. By the way, this is in a chapter of the book called "The True and Untransmittable Dharma." The kind who puffs up self-importantly when he's able to round up seven or eight monks. He stalks like a tiger with a mean glint in his eye. Parades around like an elephant with his nose stuck proudly in the air. You know, I think of uh, of, of our own time. Uh, we, as far as far as I know, in in uh, North America, we haven't really had to deal with these misfit monks who go around just wreaking havoc um, out of their immaturity. We read about them a couple of days ago. But uh, there are uh, teachers or even people who are not yet teachers who um, they sort of uh, pose as enlightened ones. They learn a certain kind of... Um, bunch of theatrics that they think define, you know, distinguishes them as teachers and uh, shouting or slamming their fists, their, their palm on the floor, striking with a stick. Um, I know without a doubt that some of these peoples haven't, 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 if they've seen into their true nature at all, it's very much of a, a grazing insight. And yet they carry on as though they're, uh, you know, Rinzai or Toksan, uh, reborn. Uh, again, back to Hakuin. Parades around like an elephant with his nose stuck proudly in the air. He delivers smug judgments. And then here's, here's uh, Hakuin uh, speaking in the voice of these uh, proud teachers. Master so-and-so is an excellent monk. His poems are reminiscent of Li Yu Lin. Writes po lights prose like Yuan Chung Lang, and the ample fare you get in his temple cannot be matched as food, cannot be matched anywhere else in the country. There is a morning meal, a midday meal, tea and cakes three times a day. Before the afternoon tea break is even over, the board sounds announcing the evening meal. Yeah, it sounds all right to me. The master teaches the Dharma of direct pointing itself and ushers students into enlightenment with no more effort than it takes to pick up a clod of dirt at the roadside. Mr. Kobayashi's third son went to him and was immediately enlightened. He's just, Hakuin here is just uh, is pulling out some uh, common Japanese names. Mr. Suzuki's fourth son went and grasped the Dharma right off. Samurais and farmers artisans and merchants, even butchers, innkeepers, peddlers, and everyone else who passes through the gates of his temple. He leads them all straight into the realm of truth. 
I don't know of a training hall in the world to compare with it. Any monk on pilgrimage who fails to enter so-and-so's gate is making the mistake of a lifetime. He is throwing his search for for Satori right out the window. Yeah, and there there are even respected teachers uh, in in North America and Europe who uh, will just run people through their first koan in no time. Um, and then others imagine that because they mistake quantity or number, on the one hand, for quality. We'll get back to this later. Hakuin just rages about this, passing people too easily. But first he comments here, after after uh, using the voice of one of these uh, proud teachers, then he says, What graveyard did you pillage for those old leftover offerings? Who did you who did you get that line about direct pointing from? How can you say that enlightenment comes as effortless, effortlessly as picking up a clod of dirt? Are you really talking about the secret transmission of the sixth patriarch? The, the essential matter that Lin Chi transmitted? If it was as easy as you say it is, and it was enough for a student merely to receive and accept a teaching after his teacher explained it to him, why do Zen people speak of the, quote, wondrous dharma that the Buddhas and patriarchs do not transmit? I can't resist uh, another anecdote. I think I've told it at least once before uh, about a student of mine in Europe this was 20 years ago, who um, we had went to many sessions, first here and then uh, in Sweden. And um, he, he could no longer fly, make these transatlantic flights to come to Sashin here. And so he asked about going to Sashin with uh, a certain uh, yeah, German teacher, and nothing, who's not any in our lineage at all, no relation but who had was probably the most prominent Zen teacher in Europe. I said, sure, give it a try. And what he reported, this is a student who had been working on subsequent koans with me. What he reported is that when he would go in and present a demonstration of the koan he was working on, if it wasn't just right, the teacher would say, no, here's how it's done. Every time. No, here's how it is. <sighs> Roshi Kaplow used to quote his teacher, Yastani Roshi, uh, in saying, the job of a teacher is not only to reveal the truth, but to expose the false. Roshi Kaplow was uh, much more inclined than I am to uh, rage himself in the, in the fashion of Hakuin about uh, false teachers. Um, it just doesn't quite go with my own grain, so I don't do much of that. But I, I had to mention just a, an example, a specific example of someone uh, who, in as recently as 20 years ago, 
was uh, making the same mistake. Hakuin goes on to tell the story of uh, Chinese Zen master Shang Yen, uh, who in Japanese is known as Kyogen. Um, we know this Kyogen from the fifth koan uh, in the, I think it's the fifth, uh, yeah, the fifth koan in the Mumonkan, uh, a man up a tree. But here's here's his own very short <clears throat> story in Hakuin's words. One day long ago when Zen master Xiang Yan, Kyogen, was studying under Guishan, that's, uh, yeah, uh, this, the master addressed the following question to him. I'm trying to avoid cluttering this up with too many names. I he- I've heard you have a brilliant mind. They say you're so perceptive that when you were with your late teacher, Bo Zhang, you gave answers of ten when he asked about one, and answers of a hundred when he asked about ten. But that intellectual sharpness and perceptiveness is the very source of birth and death. What I want from you right now is a single phrase that comes from a time prior to your birth. He's pointing out what a what a handicap it can be to have a very uh, high IQ, basically, a, a, a um, or at least. Maybe I take that back. It's not so much the IQ as as the tendency to uh, traffic in words and concepts. Uh, how how much of a handicap it can be to be highly educated uh, with a lot of verbal ability. That's what this Kyogen was. So what I want from you right now is a single phrase that comes from a time prior to your birth. Uh, Xiang Yan, that's Kyogen, utterly confused, returned to the monk's quarters in a daze. He took out the writings he had been studying and began to comb them for a phrase he could take back to the master. But he was unable to come up with a single one. Well, that's to his credit. That none of them, he realized none of them would do the trick. He sighed to himself. You can't satisfy hunger with a paint, a painting of a rice cake. He went back and begged the master from, for some clue that would help him answer. And then the master said, If I told you something now, later you would curse me to your dying day. Whatever I said would be mine. It would have nothing to do with you. You and your questioning. And then uh, it goes on, uh, Kyogen ended up taking all his writings and study notes and tossing them into the fire. So far, so good. Uh, at that point, I mean, uh, sutras and other texts have their place, no doubt. But at that point, he was probably, his, this was his innate wisdom that prompted him to do this. He tossed them straight into the fire. And he said, I'll never 
practice Zen again in this lifetime. I think I'll go on an extended pilgrimage. I can beg my way as a mendicant monk. At least I can avoid wearing myself out like I'm doing now. So this is discouragement. This is massive discouragement. It reminds me of Hakuin's own story where he quit Zen for a year, I think, out of discouragement. Depression we, we, is what the word that, that was used uh, earlier in this session. I make this point because discouragement is not, not a deal breaker. Get on the other side of it. But it is a, a, a awfully painful scene here that that uh, Hakuin paints. He took leave of the master with tears in his eyes and made straight for the uh, Xiangyan Temple to pay homage at the memorial tower of National Master Hui Zhong. When he got there, he decided to stay for a while and rest up from his long journey. Uh, there are other uh, there are other sources that say he just was content to uh, just tend to the grave of this national, great national teacher. One day he was clearing away some brush and weeds. Uh, they didn't have weed whackers then. I see, yeah, he had a sickle. His sickle struck a pebble throwing it against the trunk of a bamboo with a sharp talk. At that instant, he attained enlightenment. He hurried back to the monk's quarters and washed to purify himself. Then he lit some incense and bowed deeply in the direction of the temple where his master resided. And then he said, The gratitude I owe you for your great compassion is far greater than that I owe my own parents. And then he added, If you had given in to my pleas that day and said something to help me, given me the answer, this moment would never have arrived. And then Hakuin comments, Do you see? The masters of our school have never imparted one shred of Dharma to their students. Not because they were worried about protecting the Dharma, but because they were worried about protecting their students. We can be sure of one thing, that when he came to that came to awakening with that sharp report of the pebble against the bamboo trunk, he could have had nothing in his mind. No thoughts about himself and what a poor, humble monk he was that he had to settle for just tending the grave. How inadequate I am. No. There could not have been anything like that in his mind. No thought at all. Awakening occurs from a mind free of thoughts. Any kind of thoughts. Maybe especially the thought of awakening. That's the big one, that we can squeeze out of the mind 
through questioning the koan or through complete absorption in whatever our practice, even breath practice. So, of course, the point Hakuin has made, just to summarize, is uh, what a disservice uh, a teacher is causing when she or he uh, helps a student too much, tries to explain, explain the answers to koans, or, or uh, just explains too much. Really, uh, when, a, when a student presents an answer to a koan that is not it, the teacher's bell, that handbell that we ring to dismiss the student, dismiss their answer, this is a, a, a signal of the teacher's faith in the student. I wish I had been more clear about that when I was working on koans. I would sometimes get mad at Roshi Kaplow. I'd go in there so sure of my my demonstration and get a bell and be leaving the Doksan room just exasperated, angry. Every time the teacher rings that bell, it's a testimony of faith of the student. You can do this. You can do this. You don't need my answers. You don't need as much help as you think you do. Stick with it. Stay with it. Don't minimize your own innate wisdom. Don't deny it. Here's another passage um, from the chapter, same book, The Essential Teachings of Zen Master Hakuin, chapter called Repaying the Buddhas and Patriarchs. He writes, if a single person of superior capacity, uh, superior capacity, uh, let's just put a footnote there, because we Americans so easily underestimate or or divide into those with superior capacity, those with inferior capacity. It becomes uh, such such an obstacle in the mind. We so easily um, judge ourselves and others, but for sure ourselves. So when he says superior capacity, it just means someone who has got to the point where they're willing to trust the practice they're working on more than the thoughts. That's pretty much what it is. Which do you trust more? Your thoughts that keep rolling in or this practice that is the realm of no no thought, no mind? That's really what it comes down to. Do you want to keep invi- and 
when you discover that your your mind has wandered, do you want to linger in there and go on chewing on your thoughts, even if they can be very interesting? Do you really want to do that, or are you ready? Are you ready to pivot back to the practice? That's that's what he means by superior, really. And that means it's not any kind of final judgment. If you're, if you're not doing that, if you're spending too much time in your thoughts, if you still think your thoughts are your friends and you're going to get something out of thinking um, when you're on the mat, uh, then you still can go beyond that. Every, everyone can do that. Back to his words. If a single person of superior capacity commits himself to the authentic pursuit of the way and through sustained effort under the guidance of a true teacher fills with the power of sheer single-mindedness, then his normal processes of thought, perception, consciousness, and emotion will cease and he will reach the limits of words and reason. In other words, this is reaching reaching our wit's end. Wit is a, a word that used to mean um, intellectual prowess, more or less. And that's what, the, that's what we want to do, regardless of what practice we're working on, whether it's a koan or another practice, is to, to exhaust our wit our intellectual um, machinations. He will reach the limits of words and reason. He will resemble an utter fool as everything, including his erstwhile determination to pursue the way, disappears and his breath itself hangs almost suspended. At that point, what a pity that a Dharma teacher, one who is supposed to act as his great and good friend, should be unaware that this is the occasion when the tortoise shell is about to crack the phoenix, about to break free of its egg. If such a teacher should not know that these are all favorable signs seen in those poised on the threshold of enlightenment, that such a teacher should be stirred by grandmotherly kindness and immediately give in to tender feelings of compassion for the student, misguided, of course he's talking about misguided, pity, maybe would be a better word, and begin straight off explaining to him the reason for this and the principle for that, drawing him down to the abode of delusory surmise, pushing him over into the cave of intellectual understanding, and then taking a phony winter melon seal and certifying his enlightenment with the pronouncement, you are like this, I am like this too. Preserve it carefully. Ah, ah, it's up to them if they want to preserve it. The trouble is they are still as far from the patriarchal groves as earth is from heaven. What are to all appearances acts of kindness on the part of a teacher helping a student are, in fact, doings that will bring about his doom. For his part, the student, 
nodding with satisfaction and without an inkling of the mortal injury he has incurred, prances and frisks about wagging his tail, proud in the knowledge, now I have grasped the secret of Bodhidharma's coming from the West. Here is Hakuin hitting full stride, warning out of his compassion, warning about those who would uh, mistakenly think that they're done. Uh, now, for sure, many of us, when we were passed on our first koan, were pretty dissatisfied. Uh, I was. I mean, there was a difference. I knew that something, I'd crossed something. Uh, but still, as a, as a, one of my peers at the time in the mid-70s uh, mid said, it was nothing to write home about. But that doesn't mean that it's a mistake for the teacher to pass the student, to have to have passed the student. There is so much that will enrich one's practice through the koan collections, the subsequent koans. It doesn't mean that you've attained what we really could call enlightenment. It means that you've seen just enough into the, this world of formless form. You've just seen enough into the fact that form is only emptiness, emptiness only form, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. You've seen just enough that you could benefit from going on to cups, uh, koans subsequent to your first one. That's all. There's no reason to be prancing about, wagging your tail when you get to that point. And, and the very real change that, that should have happened is that even to a slight degree, now you see, above all, you see the insubstantiality of thoughts. And this is a big asset to have seen that. Then you're, you're never going to be quite as deceived by thoughts again. You'll see what they see them for what they are, just noise in the mind, dust to be ignored. So yes, in modern times, and this is this is certainly true in, in Japan too, in modern times, uh, most people, uh, when they're passed on their first koan, it's it's a very slight little peek into this original mind. But that doesn't mean that teacher, I feel, and so did Roshi Kaplow and his teacher, that you don't have to wait for the student has uh, deeply enlightened to have them start working their way through subsequent koans. The, the, the thing that a teacher prays for, don't take me literally, but prays for is that the student, while, while working through these, these koans, will will maintain the kind of uh, aspiration to go further, go beyond. 
that same aspiration that enabled them to have that initial breakthrough that you'll continue uh, for years and years or the rest of their life. Here's another passage about that very thing. Here again, uh, Hakoen is, uh, this is a chapter in the same book called, the chapter is called Poisonous Leavings of Past Masters. You know, uh, these, these, <laughs> this language, this violent um, language of Hakoen's understand poison poison from Hakuin's perspective is the greatest gift uh, to the student it's 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 poisoning the mind of egoistic delusion poisoning the the uh, the, the, the workings of the intellect that block us from seeing beyond the intellect Here he begins, he quoting uh, another Chinese master, Zen master Nan Dong said, you must see your own nature as clearly and unmistakably as you see the palm of your hand. At the fundamental ground of your being, there must be an undisturbed tranquility. Now this is, this um, uh, now in my words, this is different. This the fundamental ground of your being. There must be an undisturbed tranquility. Is very different from the kind of superficial tranquility, the the uh, dead sitting and silent illumination that Hakuin often referred to, of uh, someone who hasn't come to awakening. An, another phrase in Zen texts about this fundamental tranquility is the great surcease, the great rest. He continues, I want to impress all patricians who probe the secret depths, great people all, with the need to put your innate power to work for you as vigorously and relentlessly as you can. The moment your Kensho is perfectly clear, throw it aside and dedicate yourself to boring through the difficult-to-pass koans. Once you are beyond those barriers, you will understand exactly what the Buddha meant when he said that a Buddha can see the Buddha nature with his own eyes as distinctly as you see a fruit lying in the palm of your hand. Once you penetrate to see the ultimate meaning of the patriarchal teachers, you will be armed for the first time with the fangs and claws of the Dharma cave. You will sport the divine, excuse me, you will sport the divine life usurping talisman. You will enter into the realm of the Buddhas, stroll leisurely through the realms where evil demons dwell. You can imagine demons uh, to mean uh, troubling mind states, frightening mind states, the realms where evil demons dwell, pulling out nails, wrenching free wedges, dispersing great clouds of compassion as you go, 
practicing the great Dharma giving and rendering immense benefit to the monks who come to you from the four quarters. But you will still be the same old monk you always were. You won't be doing anything out of the ordinary. Your eyes will stare out from your face from the same location as before. Your nose will be where it always was. Yet now you will be the genuine article, an authentic descendant of the Buddhas and patriarchs, to whom you will have fully repaid that incalculable debt of gratitude which you owe them. Here he's, he's pointing to the fact that after awakening, everything is everything is the same while also different. Want to, want, to, want to know what that refers to? Find out. He goes on, You will be at liberty to spend your days free from the clutches of circumstance. You will drink tea when it is given, eat rice when it is served. Doing and non-doing will be firmly in your grasp. Not even the Buddha patriarchs will be able to touch you. You'll be a true monk worth alms of millions in gold. If, on the other hand, you follow the trend of the times when you enter the dark cave of unknowing in the eighth consciousness, you will start bragging about what you have achieved. In other words, just... uh, sinking into this deep stillness, uh, quietude, you will go around telling everyone how enlightened you are. You will accept, under false pretenses, the veneration and charity of others and wind up being one of those arrogant creatures who declares he has attained realization when he has not. Oh, all of a sudden, this koan in the Blue Cliff record is just sprang to mind. I'll see if I can retrieve it by memory, where uh, the uh, monk comes to the master, and the master says, uh, where have you come from? And he said, from the, the foot of Mount, uh, let's say, make <laughs> Whiteface Mountain. That's here in the Northeast United States. Where have you come from? From Whiteface Mountain. Uh, did you... Did you uh, did you climb the mountain? Uh, yes, I did. Did you see the summit? No. Then you don't know mountains. Okay. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs> 